This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria Tellez interviews Amy Pershing, the author of Binge Eating Disorder, The Journey to Recovery and Beyond. Amy Pershing, LMSW, ACSW, is the founder of BodyWise Binge Eating Disorder Recovery Program and the clinical director at the Center for Eating Disorders in Ann Arbor. Based on 30 years of clinical experience, Amy has pioneered a treatment approach for BED that is strengths-based, incorporating internal family systems and somatic trauma techniques. Her approach also integrates attuned eating and movement and a health-at-every-size philosophy. Amy offers two- and three-day intensives for those in recovery and is the creator of HungerWise, a nine-week program for ending chronic dieting and weight cycling offered jointly with St. Joseph Mercy Health System in Michigan. Pershing lectures internationally and writes extensively on the treatment of BED and her own recovery journey for both professional and lay communities. She has been featured on radio, podcast, and television speaking about BED treatment and recovery, relapse prevention, weight stigma, and attuned eating and movement. She is the winner of BEDA's 2016 Pioneer in Clinical Advocacy Award and has served on a variety of professional boards. She is the past chair of the Binge Eating Disorder Association and its current chair of BED Clinical Education. Amy maintains her clinical practice treating BED in Ann Arbor. Meet Amy on thebodywiseprogram.com. Here is the interview with Amy Pershing. In your own words, who is Amy Pershing? Mm, what a lovely question. <laughs> um, I, I would say I'm, I'm someone who asks questions of, uh, of anything I'm presented. I, I'm very much a, a questioner. Um, I want to go deeper. I want to know why. Um, I always end up wanting to get to the very root um, I'm someone who believes that we're always shifting and changing and growing in my field. I'm often asked, what is the process to be recovered? And I, I don't know that I actually believe that there is such a thing as recovered with a period at the end of the sentence. Um, I, I like to think I will be evolving always. Um, and I'm also someone who is very curious. Um, I want to know all the different ways to be 
a person, to be human, to be in culture, to relate to each other. What does it mean to be a human being to you, Amy? I think one of what one of the things that feels the most um, uh, I don't know, sort of precious about us, the most uh, exquisite to me, is our ability to um, to to look in. Uh, as I said, so to to get to know who we are, um, but also to see ourselves as part of a whole, as part of community. Um, and I think also to to learn from our experience, um, to be able to broaden how we think about life and living. Um, I think that's what what makes us human. I, I, I certainly fear for the human animal. Um, sometimes I think we we sometimes have things at our disposal like technology that we're not psychologically ready for. And I, I do worry about us. Um, but I, I feel very hopeful, too. Yeah, that's an interesting comment. I never heard the way you just said. So technology, we're not quite ready for it. I'm wondering why? Why is that? I, I think to have something with as immediate and broad an impact and to use it well, we have to have a lot of insight in why we're responding to something in a particular way. And I think we're, is, I, I'm, I'm really, one way I sort of think about this, I'm always surprised that in most schools, psychology is not a, a, a class. Mm, right. I find that really astonishing. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no sort of, we're, we're not given the user's manual. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> I agree. We're not really taught about how to go in and how to do it without shame, um, how to, you know, how to be with ourselves well. And I think until we can do that, um, something that is as reactive and impulse driven as, say, the Internet has real potential for, for danger. And I think we see that. So that that worries me. What does it mean to you or what is the meaning of healthy to be healthy? What does it look like from your perspective? Um, for me, I don't think that there is, and this is just from working with clients for many years and, and on my own journey of trying to figure out what healthy is for me. I, I don't think that it is a, I don't think it's a one size fits all narrative. I don't think it's even necessarily very often externally um, really determined for any individual person. To me, healthy means, fundamentally means listening. Um, it means listening to our body. Um, it means listening to our, I think our body has tremendous wisdom. And in so many ways, we're taught to um, either overlook it or suppress it. And I think about, you know, we're taught, for example, not to eat in response to our body, but to diet. Right. We're, you know, we're really taught not to trust our gut, but to, you know, push through. Um, to me, healthy really fundamentally is about listening and trusting. For a moment, talk to me about diets in general. Well, it, there's it is a, a, certainly a broad, <laughs> a broad 
um, uh, and meaningful topic for me. So I, I can start personally with, um, I, I started my first diet when I was 10 years old. Um, it was Scarsdale, if anyone remembers that. Um, and I dieted off and on um, always um, until I went into eating disorder treatment, actually. Um, but I think what one of the things that I was taught is that my body um, was not okay. I, I was in a body that was bigger than was accepted. Um, and so I learned that I, it was my body was something in need of controlling and something in need of fixing, not something in need of listening to and trusting. And I was taught that if you have willpower and you, um, you know, are are earnest in your efforts, that you're you will be thin. That that is a reasonable and even desirable and healthy, necessarily a healthy goal for every body. And so that's that's what I learned. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I learned in the form of a diet that someone else knows better how to feed my body than I do. Um, I was taught that if a diet didn't work, it was because I wasn't doing it properly or I had cheated or failed. We use these very moralized, moralizing words, you know, you cheated um, on your diet. The other piece of it, I think, too, is that when we're focusing so much on this aesthetic I ideal, this, this sort of notion that thin is something to be attained or, or protected if a person already lives in a thin body, that if, if, we're, if we're taught that that's something of value to, to uh, pursue, the amount of time and energy and money that women especially and, and increasing numbers of men um, spend an extraordinary amount of money and time and energy to do. And I think about how much time and energy I wasted pursuing that ideal. So I think dieting really fundamentally is predicated on shame and shame makes a lot of money. Right? So I, I think as an industry, it is damaging. Um, I think for women, it keeps them from trusting their bodies and living fully in their bodies. Um, it, dieting is a gateway to eating disorders. The vast majority of people with eating disorders have significant dieting histories. So dieting alone, of course, is not enough to cause an eating disorder, but it is a gateway drug. Um, so I, I could talk for a very long time, but I will take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I have to take a breath too, because <laughs> that also made me think about the, um, yeah, this is a question I had for you earlier about intuitive eating. Is this something that you recommend? We do. It is. Um, yes, intuitive eating is, I think, I mean, it's interesting even that we have to construct something called intuitive eating. Right, true. <laughs> As a concept, my idea. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that we have to have some name or something, right? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> that, that basically yeah. means listening to cues um, and, and trusting them. Mm. 
Um, you, you said something about, you know, eating a, a plant-based diet that, that for you, that feels, I think I understood you, or for, or for whomever, you know, that that may feel like a, their body uh, feels its best. Yeah, for me, it does, yeah, it feels so, better. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and what, I, you, I mean, that's, I think that's a, that's a wonderful way to, to think about how you're guided to that way of, of feeding your body. Right, and I think that's that's the ultimately the goal of intuitive eating that there isn't a a way to eat, but that there's a way for my body to eat and your body to eat and someone else's body to eat. We really don't know in terms of the research, in terms of the science, we really don't know the optimal diet for a human body, right. and I would suggest that there may not be such a thing. That it, it may indeed be that there are differences among us about what makes for a healthy body. Um, and so I think the more we can pay attention, how do you feel if you eat plant-based? Other people might feel weakened or tired from yeah. that. Perhaps we, we can pay attention to our own individual truths. It's my next question. Do you believe we all have a unique purpose? for this life? I believe that, that each of us has fundamentally something that, it, that I, I refer to in my work as, a, as our unique or authentic self. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a part of us that is uh, unharmed by trauma, that is intrinsically compassionate and curious, um, that is open um, that is protective, um, that that is um, able to go in and go out. Um, I think each of those uh, authentic, unique selves, um, it, I think it's our, our job as best we're able to uh, connect to that energy, um, to come back to it when we uh, wander away. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, I, you know, and I, I connect to that energy, uh, sometimes in meditation, sometimes really when I'm walking in my yard, I'm extremely blessed to have a lot of trees and just a, a beautiful area. Um, and that connects me to something that's of which I am a part, um, but that is much larger. Um, and from that space, I feel like I have access to who I really am. Um, so I think each of us, in, in our own ways, is, is on that journey. It's different for everyone. And it is yes. so true. And you mentioned nature. Uh, there's something about nature that definitely connects us to that authentic self, as you call it, or the heart or the uh, intuition. And I wonder why. <laughs> Sometimes I do ask the question to some people, but I'll ask you, do you wonder why? Well, I, I feel like for me anyway, I can answer it from that point. But, but for me, I think it it's uh it's such a powerful connective force because it it I, I'm part of it. I mean, f- fundamentally, I think we we do this kind of humans versus nature sort of dichotomy, um, and that doesn't make sense. I think that that serves people who want to have power over nature. Um, and so when I'm in it, I know I'm of it. Um, and that feels, um, I think, in a very fundamental way, um, like I'm home. 
right? That there's nothing to fix because nothing's broken, right? right? It's things just are. Yes. What do you love most about being a woman? About being a woman? Yes. Mm. Oh, many things. Uh, Many things. Um, what a great question. I, I, I would say that I think in a, in a way, one of the things that I, I, I love about being a woman right now, actually, is so I think I have to define it partly as uh, my, you know, place in time um, is that I think we're to a greater degree, maybe than ever before, women are being encouraged to get to know themselves on their own terms, not to get to know themselves as they relate to a male way of being in the world. Right. So we're, we're able, I think, to to not sort of say, how well do I fit into the patriarchy? But right. But who, who am I? Um, I, I, I like that we're challenging the notions of masculine and feminine and what that even means. Um, I feel like those are social constructs anyway. Um, and so I think women in some ways have more permission um, than they ever have, and in some ways more permission often than than at least straight cisgendered you know men have um, to be able to um, embody both masculine and feminine. You know, the follow up question for that one is: Have you faced any challenges for being a woman? Oh, many. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> Um, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, certainly because I, I treat uh, eating disorders, and so I work a lot with women's relationships with their bodies. Um, and so certainly, I think one of the challenges uh, that I would say is overarching for much of my life is a sense of having to be careful. Um, moving around in the world, having to be aware of where dangers might be, um, you know, being careful about where you walk at night or, you know, how you how you look, um, you know, those kinds of things are have shaped how I feel safe or don't feel safe in the world. Um, so most certainly that is a, a piece of it. Um, I think uh, as a, you know, I've worked a long time in this field. I think that um, we've had as an you know, eating disorder clinician, um, I've noticed as uh, in fields that where, you know, when I started in this field, even though the vast majority of people struggling with eating disorders were women, the, the experts, quote unquote, in the field were all white men. Yeah. So we had very few people with the voice of experience um, at the in the lead in the communities, and so I think that was it too. Is we we had this immediate lack of credibility as women, and that's taken a long time to, to challenge. Do you think it's changing at this time? Those um, challenges. I do think it's changing. I think there's, um, yeah, I do think it's changing. The the young women that I, I work with as clients and, and as colleagues, I do a lot of um, professional supervision and um, they are, 
necessarily questioning as part of treatment um, uh, patriarchal values um, or um, homophobia or, you know, the, the things, the systems that have kept any of us um, in a very small role, you know, not, not being able to be truly authentic. And that's different. That was not true when I started um, in my career. So much more now, I think, is this permission to talk about person in environment and understand how, for example, moving around in the world in your body as a woman and not feeling safe um, affects you psychologically. Right. Because it profoundly does. Freedom. What is the meaning of freedom to you? What is to be free, finally? Mm. Um, I think uh, freedom is to truly be able to, as I said earlier, to listen and to, to trust. I think, you know, I am at, uh, at the age I'm, you know, thinking about retirement in the coming years and, and I, what I've realized at getting to this, to this time in my life is that I, there, there, there are many ways that I, you know, worked more than I should have <laughs> um, and, and did kind of did these, these things because they're expected, you know, sort of what is the next level in my career. And of course I would want to do that because why would you not want to do that? <laughs> right. They're just this sort of given um, to keep going and going and going um, and that that has been always in my life defined as success. Um, and I, I think we need to challenge that as, as a culture. So to me, freedom is to be able to suspend expectations, not to dismiss them. We can we can look at them and see if they truly fit us. Um, but I think to be able to live authentically and to be able to live in transition, I think we're always in transition. Change and transitions, renewal, right? And to live, to live in the body that is speaking just from my own you know work experience, part of freedom for me is also about being able to live in the body that is most true to you without any kind of stigma or oppression. I have one more warm-up question. This is about the challenges 2020 and the chains, speaking of chains. What have you learned from 2020? Oh dear! <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I oh many things. I've I've learned. I think first and foremost, I've learned. Um, I am just. Let me say it this way: just how critical to sanity, <laughs> connection, truth is. Um, how how much the longing to be with my my people um, is physical and spiritual and psychological and emotional. I miss my people and I can see them on Zoom and I can, you know, whatever, I can talk to them on the phone. It's not the same that there's a, a fundamental energy of being together um, that really sustains us in a way I think I wouldn't have understood. I understood that intellectually, um, but now I understand it somatically. Um, I understand it viscerally. I didn't before. 
I think that's the single biggest. Um, and then maybe another thing is I, I have, um, I've found some some fear um, for us going forward um, as a as a species, I guess. <laughs> you know, and the the degree to which we are able to feel empathy. Um, the degree to which something seems to be important to us only if it is near and dear to us um, is disturbing to me. Um, I, I, I worry that people are not able to understand others' pain and they judge it, that, that we judge and we lash out when we're afraid. Um, and so that, that scares me. I think we have a longer road to go um, than I than I thought, um, and that 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 makes me me sad and and also hopeful in the sense that I'm seeing other people uh, understand that too, and also be worried about it. And I think that's the good news, actually. I do have another question for you: the warm up questions. Um, spirituality, what is it to you? Um, I think uh, for me, I'm I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a cosmology nerd. Yeah. <laughs> so I am absolutely fascinated uh, uh, by trying to understand just the nature of all of this. <laughs> um, and so that to me that's the I, I have a um, I'm not a religious person um, I'm not a, a spiritual person in a traditional sense um, but I am profoundly curious about the why and the what's next um, I don't feel like I have any of the answers and I'm I'm okay with that um, I feel like I, I know the answers um, or, or that I, I, I am always suspicious when people say they do. <laughs> um, um, so I, I think I, I'm uh, learning to live with I, I won't know, but it is the it is the discovery and the, the, the asking the question that has to be. <laughs> and it is. <laughs> so how did you become a writer and what was the um intention of writing your book, Binge Eating Disorder, The Journey to Recovery and Beyond? Um, I've always, I've always been a writer. Um, I've, I've always written, I've written poetry and fiction and, you know, I've always, I've always been a writer. My mother was a writer. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's a primary way for me to get at what's going on uh, <laughs> inside. So it's, it's always been a path in for me um but this this book in particular um came about because in the field there there have been a lot of books really about the other eating disorders about anorexia and bulimia those are typically in the the, the sort of popular culture when we think of an eating disorder we think of anorexia you know we think of disorder of restriction of starvation um and uh, my eating disorder didn't fit that I, I certainly did restrict, um, but I, I was not anorexic. Um, and I, I came to realize that I was either on a diet or I was binging. 
I was binging. I was eating very large amounts of food in a very short period of time. I felt out of control, unable to stop it. And um, I went into treatment for that. And really, there wasn't any any name for what I was experiencing. And so I, I really just kind of had to find my own way um, and and sort of kludge together some of what already existed in eating disorder treatment. But that was not really, it was not really sufficient. And so um, as I, I went through my training and I went through my own recovery and, and I really came to realize that this is a different, it's a different thing. Um, and so it certainly has commonalities with other eating disorders. Most people with binge eating disorder, for example, have histories of restriction. Um, but it, it really is something very different. I, I also learned just how important weight stigma and thin privilege really are to the body shame that for many people drives binge eating disorder. So. It, as as time went on, it became pretty clear that a book was was a good idea. Um, and then finally, a um, a publisher actually approached me and asked me about doing it. And I said, I, I think this is a sign from somewhere <laughs> that yeah. it's it's time. Um, so that's that's where it it came from. I know we use different words or labels: a disorder, conditions, disease, illness. Why disorder with this kind of um let's say, imbalance. That sounds like an imbalance to me. I, I'm i not crazy about the term disorder anyway. <laughs> me too. For some so, reason, yeah, the label disordered illness, I, right, right. But I, I don't like words? Yeah, I don't like it for, for a number of reasons. One, one is it's pathologizing. Um, yeah. And what I find to be true actually is that eating disorders in general, but I'm, I'm just going to speak to binge eating disorder, um, it is very often adaptive. Um, many of my clients have trauma histories. And, and what we mm -hmm. find is that the relationship that they have with food is protective in many ways. And so to suggest that something is a disorder apply, implies pathology. And I don't look at the pers I don't look at binge eating disorder that way. I, I look at it from a strengths perspective. I try to to work with people to understand how that relationship with food is adaptive and protective. Um, and so to me, it's not a disorder. But I, I think what it what it speaks to that word speaks to is that we we pathologize things so so deeply. You think about the we have a you know diagnostic and statistical manual. We have international classification of diseases, right? We have these yeah. these sort of ways that we say this is what is normal and if you deviate from this in in some way, we have a code that we call a disorder or a syndrome or right. whatever. Um, okay. I I find that if we look at how many of those behaviors are adaptive, we would not apply the word disorder nearly as often as we do. I know that for the sake of uh, studies, in your case, in science, they have to use words and categories. Right. And, and many, I think that's, that's a, a significant piece of it is that, you know, we unfortunately, in order to have insurance coverage for services mm -hmm. or in order to obtain research dollars, we have to have codes, we have to have disorders and syndromes and uh -huh. things that we're defining. And well, I do understand that that does make sense. Unfortunately, it 
really removes the meaning often of symptomatology. And so we're left with it really being this kind of um, discrete thing that's almost separate from the person and, and often it is not separate at all. You said you wrote a healing binge eating disorder. It's not an easy journey. So my question is, what are the greatest challenges, Amy, in recovering or healing bed? Uh, there, there are many. I would say some of them are um, from the. Some of them are internal, um, and some of them are um, in the, the the environment in which the person finds themselves. So, for example, access to treatment um, is is very poor. If we look at it, kind of in terms of our whole. Actually, it's it's pretty poor everywhere. But if we look at it um, in terms of our country, um, there's very limited access to appropriate treatment. Um, there's limited recognition that with binge eating disorder in particular, that it is an eating disorder. For, for many people still, if they go to their, their primary care person and that person's not informed about binge eating disorder and the person says, I'm, I'm struggling with this, you know, with not, you know, with these overeating episodes, yeah. very often what happens is they're prescribed a diet. Yeah. And, and diets drive the behavior. Right. And so what we end up having this, you know, this behavior in fact reinforced. Um, so there, there are a lot of, a lot of things environmentally that, that sustain the eating disorder instead of create space for it to heal. Um, internally, some of the, the toughest things, if we think about, again, the degree to which a person goes to food to disconnect mm. from what may be intolerable internally. Um, so for many, again, many of my clients who are survivors of you know, physical or sexual trauma or you know, what, whatever it might be, emotional abuse as a child or you know, met myriad issues, they're, you know, to be safe, they've had to disconnect from much of their internal experience. And so it's a, it is a tremendous amount of courage that is required to allow space to do that healing. So that's that's part of why it's a tough journey. I, I often say to, to people, you know, it's it, like if I'm just doing trainings and things, that, that it is the toughest thing I've ever done in my own personal life. Yeah. And it is also the most important thing I have ever done. So I'm wondering what's the process of finding, discovering the causes of binge eating disorder? One one piece of it, as I, I said earlier, you know, I think part of one of one of the things that becomes really important, I think, in order to to just to develop as a person is to be able to look inside safely. It should feel safe to go in. That's a that's a big part of the work of of healing. Now that's a thirty thousand foot sort of view, but that's a, a big part of it. Is that uh, hopefully my clients will be able as they move along to increasingly go in safely and hear whatever is there from that compassionate self. So part of what we do is to understand what are the triggers, what are the uh, of binge episodes, what are the what are the things that that different parts of a person are going to a binge to do? Um, sometimes it's to deal with restriction from a diet. Sometimes it's that simple. Um, but 
But often it's it's more complicated than that. Perhaps a person got triggered and reminded at a at a at a core level about some some trauma from the past. They might not be aware that that's what's going on, but they find themselves eating ice cream or whatever it might be. So part of our job is to get good at each of us get good at knowing our language around food, knowing what parts of us have things to say and are using that relationship with food to do it, whether it's or restriction, actually. How do we know when we are displaying these um, kinds of behaviors, this imbalanced and dysfunctional relationship with food? Um, well, one is the, the, the more disconnected we are from our body cues, the more we're right, the more we're either overeating or undereating, the more we're not uh, able to tend to those cues, right, the more evidence that there's an eating disorder. So that's, that's one thing. Um, also, I think is just body obsession, how much time and energy is being spent thinking about fixing something about your body. Um, how shame-driven is your relationship with your body, right? Um, how much checking do you do? We often refer to body checking behaviors with eating disorders. How often are you worrying about how someone is perceiving your body? And again, we have to we have to make, make note that that's partly internally driven, but it's also externally driven, right, in the form of weight stigma in our, our culture in every direction. I'm wondering if thinking about, even overthinking, or thinking too much about food is also part of the, uh, a sign that there is an issue. Absolutely. I think one, one way we could, we could look at it is the moralization around food. So do you feel better or worse about yourself based on what you eat? If you do, if there's any shift or change, or I should say significant shift or change in how you view yourself based on what you have or have not eaten, if it's to a clinical level, it takes over much of your life. But I, I would argue that's never a good thing, <laughs> right? You have sort of right? Shame is never a motivator of change. Love is a motivator of change. My body is something I should be seeking to cherish, not to change, not to fix, right? right? To protect. And that's interesting that I'm just I'm realizing now how much I think about food. <laughs> oh, I need to eat this and it has to be healthy. And that doesn't seem to be okay. I have some work to do, <laughs> some more work to do in this and some meditation to do. <laughs> We all do. And I think, too, right. we have this. We, we can have that sort of narrative that, you know, food is supposed to be healthy. And, it is, you know, we have that good food, bad food dichotomy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that especially when there's an eating disorder present. Right. We have this sort of setup that I'm good if I eat good food and I'm bad if I eat bad food. And I think, again, what's true is all food provides something. Some food provides a lot of nutrition. Some food simply provides joy. Let's see if we can pay attention to how different foods feel in our bodies. How do we respond to them? 
right? We'd, if we set up this narrative, again, when especially when there's an eating disorder, that, you know, you should eat broccoli, but you shouldn't eat brownies. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about, well, lo and behold, people don't binge on broccoli. <laughs> true. That's <laughs> so <Yeah>. true. <laughs> yeah. They binge broccoli, or excuse me, they binge on brownies. They right. go to the very thing that is forbidden. Suppose there isn't something forbidden, but the, but but we learn to pay attention. And I think we have that, most people have that terror that if they aren't watching themselves, they will eat nothing but brownies, right? That they will never touch the broccoli. And, and in fact, that's not what we find. Right? What we find is where there is permission, there is wisdom. There is the ability to listen, right? Um, and of course, you know, too, Valerie, what, what, what we know is that all of this is predicated on access to good food. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And not everyone has that access. True. So we have to remember that, too. You said uh, something interesting in your book, that body hate uh, happens principally as a result of wanting to be accepted by very judgmental systems. So we're trying to fit in, which in your book you say recovery is about being true to yourself and your own path. I absolutely love that. And you have talked about it in so many different ways. Would you like to add anything, Emmy, or read a passage in your book before I ask you my final questions? Um, I would just, I, I always, when I have the chance, I just invite people to consider, you know, what would happen if you could trust your body? What, what would change? What would, what would be different in your life if your body was this body just the way it is for the rest of your life? You know, what would change if you knew you couldn't change your weight? If you had to let that struggle go, what what would change? Um, and I, I just find that's an interesting question. So I always like to just toss that question out yeah. for people to consider. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? Oh, the hardest lesson. Um, I, I think I would say the hardest lesson is that uh, I uh, I tend to meet fear with anger, um, and that that has been something I've had to to work on. That is one of the toughest things. Is when I get scared, I tend to get angry, um, and so that's a, um, I think that's been the toughest thing for me is being able to find a path to compassion for that anger and allowing it to step back a bit so that I can safely know when I'm afraid. I found creativity to be the antidote to fear. Every time I, I'm afraid of fear arises, I just come up with something new. <laughs> I create something, whatever it is. And that changes the energy of fear. And yes, I, 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 I agree very much. I, I've also found for me that just allowing myself to be with fear, learning how to do that, um, so that, you know, sometimes it's just something, not always, but sometimes it's just something I need to feel through um, instead of alter. 
Do you believe in the practice of unconditional self-love? Yes, most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. And do you think it's possible to achieve that state of being, Amy? I think when we are in self, we are necessarily 100% conditional, unconditional, unconditional. <laughs> That was an interesting slip. Um, that we're that we're a hundred percent unconditional. I think that's part of self. Self brings compassion, and compassion allows whatever's there, just to be, without judgment. So it is actually accessing the self that will change everything. Yes. Yeah, I think when when we I think it's very much possible. The the, the I think where where it can get. Uh, impossible is when we sort of have this narrative that I will accept my, or I, you know, I will be unconditional as soon as I do these things. <laughs> That's conditional. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> What a dance, <laughs> an interesting dance life is. <laughs> If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? Um, no. No, I, I don't think so. I, I, I would, uh, if, I, if I knew that was coming, I might work a little bit less. <laughs> uh, that's always a very inviting, <laughs> inspiring, that idea of working less. <laughs> yeah. But my, my work is also very meaningful to me. So, it, it, but, it, you know, I think just I would spend even more time with the people that I love. But I, I try to work hard on that balance. So I, I guess big picture, I would say no, I wouldn't. What are three things about life you know for sure as of now? Oh, three. Wow, that, that's... <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we, uh, I, I guess I would, I would say three things. Let's see. Um, I, there is no, like I said, there, there is no such thing as, as being done or as being kind of, you know, uh, ending growth. I, I think we're always changing. I think we're always changing. Um, so there's that. Um, I think that we absolutely unnecessarily categorize things um, that we shouldn't. I think so many things really are spectrums, um, whether it's you know gender, sexuality, or body size, or or whatever it is. Um, I think we we necessarily um, cut off our ability to explore who we are fully. Um, so that is one thing I, I do know. Um, and I know also that we um, have a tremendous capacity, tremendous capacity um, for healing. I, I have seen some of the most, listened to some of the most uh, tragic stories in the course of my career. And I have seen resiliency, the likes of which are just extraordinary. Um, so I, I feel like whatever we face, we can come through the other side. It does not mean we will come through undamaged, but we will come through. Thank you so much again, Emmy, for your healing wisdom, your beautiful and genuine presence, your message. Again, I love your message uh, so many in so many different ways. And um, I have one more question for you, but this is a technical one. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? 
Um, well, thank you, uh, first of all, just for, for having me. I've been, it's been a delightful conversation. So thank you so much for that. Um, and um, you can, if, if um, you go to thebodywiseprogram.com, that has links to the podcasts that I've done and my book and, you know, just various different things and uh, the treatment that we do. And so that's the easiest way. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Amy Pershing and her work, please visit thebodywiseprogram.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Bye.